Good morning, church. It is, uh, I'm really excited about this Giving Trees event. Uh, we end up going down to Oregon uh, to pick up 300, to trailer back 300 live, dug for Christmas trees of all different sizes and scopes. So real quick, if you've got a long enclosed trailer, Dave Nunez, hand up, would really like to talk to you. We could either borrow it or you could drive it down. That would be great. We're looking for some enclosed trailers and we need them. U-Hauls come to find out, coming from Oregon to the state of Idaho, Idaho, specifically Coeur d'Alene, are very, very expensive because apparently we're a destination from Oregon and Washington. Any of you guys here from Oregon, Washington? I'm sure there's some of you. Yeah. Welcome. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, we're going to get into Matthew's gospel this morning. If you're new with us, what we do is we preach through books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse, thought block by thought block, passage by passage. And so we're in Matthew chapter 19. We're in verses 13 through 30. So grab one of the black Bibles around the room, or if you brought your Bible, I hope you did, open it up. Matthew 19, that's the first book of the New Testament. No shame ever in using the table of contents. So use that table of contents if you need to. Matthew chapter 19 starting in verse 13, and we'll read together this morning. We're about halfway, a little two-thirds of the way through Matthew's gospel, and this is where it starts. It starts with the word then, so that's telling us that something important has just come before. Some people are coming to Jesus asking some pretty big questions, specifically last week we talked about marriage and divorce. The Pharisees were coming to try to test and trap Jesus and, and get him to lose his influence among the people and create some division, and so they're asking him about divorce and about marriage. And then, verse 13, then children were brought to him, Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life or the kingdom of heaven, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, that word can be translated complete or mature, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then an invitation, come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and he said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have, who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake 
will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Father, would you, uh, would you open our ears to hear your word, to respond to Jesus, to follow you as humble, willing disciples. Would you instruct us? Would you disarm us? Would you help us in Jesus' name? Amen. So today, we're, we're beginning this passage. Uh, it, it, it has this, the, the passage, it has this really peculiar introduction to it in verses 13 through 15. And, and right out of the gates, Matthew has this way, and really the biblical authors have this way of, of placing these really peculiar stories within or around other stories. And so I want you to know this, student of the Bible, I want you to know this, nothing is placed by these biblical authors in these books in a happenstance way. They may feel random to us. We're like, what's, what, what, what's this thing with these little children here in this text? They may feel random to us, but they're really, really, really intentional. The way that biblical books are arranged, it, 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 what they do is they clue us in on what the authors are trying to do. These authors are often making theological points with the arrangements of our Bibles. And so far in Matthew, Matthew has brought us face-to-face with Jesus' teaching, and he's brought us face-to-face with Jesus' use of children, actually. He's talked about children in chapter 5. He's talked about them again in chapter 18, verse 1. And now he's talking about children again. He's using children as prime examples of what it is to be a citizen, the posture of citizens in his kingdom. And so in chapter 18, verse 1, the disciples, they come to Jesus, and they're asking him, hey, how do we get to greatness? We want greatness, Jesus. What does it look like for us to be, to be great in your kingdom? And so what Jesus does is he actually pulls this little kid into the living room and he points to the child and he says, become like this kid in the way that she relates to God and you'll have a really good example of what it is to be a citizen of God's kingdom. A few weeks ago when we taught on this in Matthew chapter 18, we saw that insignificance was a marker of children in in Jesus' day. They were disregarded. They were the little ones who were looked over, humble, small in the world's eyes. They do come with this teachable posture. All of these are identifiers of kingdom people. The people of God are often very, very, very insignificant in the eyes of the world, often pushed to the margins. So the fact that Matthew here is sandwiching this little thought block about kids in between several explosive topics, it's not random. It's intentional. What came before last week was the topic of marriage and divorce. And what comes this week is the topic of possessions and money. And he's putting, arranging children and this posture of children right here in the middle to teach us something. He's reminding us of the posture of discipleship. That's what he's doing. He's reminding us of the posture of discipleship to him. We embrace insignificance in the world's eyes. We embrace humble obedience. We embrace joyful dependence. We take Jesus very, very seriously. But we don't take ourselves so seriously. 
That's one of these like postures of a disciple. We take what the Lord says seriously, but we resist taking ourselves too seriously. The disciples in this moment, they had completely forgotten this lesson, right? These guys, their short-term memory seems to reset all throughout the gospels about every other day. And they're irritated that people are, that these parents and, and these guardians of these kids are bringing their kids to Jesus and interrupting him with these insignificant little people. But Jesus, what he does so often, he corrects and he redirects. And he's like, you guys, let the kids come. It's to these ones that belong the kingdom of heaven. And so if nothing else, we actually see in real time here in this moment with Jesus, we see in real time the compassionate and gentle heart of God shown perfectly in the man Christ Jesus. And so this passage tells us that Jesus laid his hands on these kids and he prayed for them. And this is all over in our Old Testaments. This this is a sign of Jewish blessing. Regularly, a patriarch or a person of authority would place their hand on a person's head or on a child's head, and they would pray for them, and they would bless them, and they would prophesy essentially over them. Think of Isaac and Jacob and Esau, and then think of Jacob and his 12 sons at the end of Genesis as he lays his hands on them, and he blesses them and prays for them. But this even, even this placing of the hands on a child's head um, is just, at its core, it's just an affectionate response. Um, like when, when you don't know a little kid well, uh, but you have affection for them. Appropriate touch is often just a hand on the head real quick, just a, hey, how are you? This, oftentimes when kids come up to me in, in this community, like I'll put my hands on their head and I'll just let them know that I, I love them. It's just a quick little scratch or a quick little uh, affectionate touch just to let them know that I'm available to them and accessible to them and that they're, they're safe. So that's a common way that you can just let kids know that you care about them. It's just a, a, a slight touch on the head. All right, here, here's, that's some setup of why that is, why that section is there. But here is what I, I, I want us, what I want for us this morning. This is what I want for us this morning. The reason that I want it is because I'm sure that this is what the text wants for us this morning. This is what Jesus wants for us this morning. We, I want for us, he wants for us to remember and to be reminded of what, what he calls us to. What he calls us to. What does he call us to? He calls us to embrace a humble and a teachable posture before him. And to be able with, with, with spiritual eyes, with self-aware eyes, to see the pull that our possessions have on us and to do business with that by, notice this word by, to do business with the pull of our possessions by considering the reward of true discipleship to Jesus. What does true discipleship to Jesus look like? Whatever it is that you or I have to give up in order to follow Jesus closely is so worth it. Whatever you or I have to give up in order to follow Jesus closely is so worth it. So here's where we're going this morning. It's a two-point sermon, super simple. The pull of our possessions and the reward of true discipleship to Jesus. 
Jesus has just had this series of encounters with his disciples, but also these religious power brokers of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the disciples and these power brokers are all asking questions of him. They're asking questions of, what is it to be great in the kingdom? Who do I need to forgive? What does forgiveness look like for me? What about divorce? What about remarriage? And now this big one, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I know that I'm right with God? You can find this passage. It's paralleled also in Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 18 as well. So if you want to read these guys, they'll fill in more details around this account. But what we see in what I just read earlier in in Matthew 19 is this man has great possessions. He comes up to Jesus asking him, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? But what we see is that these possessions of his are a great roadblock for him. His possessions are in between him and God. His possessions are in between him and Christ in that moment, who is God. But the man doesn't see it. He's not self-aware. He does not have spiritual eyes. But Jesus, through his kindness and through his questions, is helping him to see. So, what about you? What about you? Are the things that you are accumulating creating distance between you and God? Are the things that you're chasing and that you're running after creating distance between you and God? So if Jesus were to say to you, hey, I don't want you to be in pursuit of that, or I want you to think differently about this thing that you are pursuing, where where would your tendency be? Would your tendency be to open yourself up to him and say, okay, Lord, I'm listening What do you want of me? Or would your tendency be to kind of quiet his voice, to kind of distance yourself from what it is that you're hearing? I think that's a helpful diagnostic question for us. I'd imagine that that if you're a follower of Jesus, his spirit is within you, that he's asking you in various ways to be generous with your money, to be generous with your home, to be generous with your calendar, to be generous in your relationships, to be generous with your things. And if as I am saying that, as, if we're t- as, as, as we're kind of considering this topic and subject of generosity, if you feel anxious when this subject comes up, there's a number of reasons why you might, good reasons why you might. That is, though, an indication that there's something going on. There's something there. There's something pulling. And... I think the way that Jesus teaches on money and on possessions, he is consistently warning us of the pull that our wealth has on us. He's consistently kind of forecasting, hey, there's an anchor here threatening your joy. There's an anchor here threatening your allegiance to me. There's an anchor here. And so the question for us is, are we, are you, are you self-aware? Are you self-aware? Let's look at the pull of possessions here. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus, um, this man comes up to him, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He, he's, I think he's sincere. I don't, I don't, like the Pharisees previously are trying to trap Jesus and the disciples, they just don't know what they're doing. They're just asking him questions and he's giving them better answers. And, and this guy, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And eternal life here is, it's 
the first time eternal life, the phrase is used in Matthew's gospel, but it is synonymous with the kingdom of heaven. And this is a, a where am I at with God question, which is a really good question for every single one of us to ask on a regular basis. Where am I with you, Lord? Where, how, how are we? Is there anything between us? Is there a wedge between us? Is there something creating distance between us? It's the best kind of question to ask. But Jesus' answer, it doesn't actually start at the place of the man's question because it's Jesus. <laughs> it, it, it starts before. The, the Pharisees earlier in the first part of chapter 19 come up saying, hey, can we divorce our wives for any reason? And Jesus is like, let me tell you about marriage. Let me tell you about the beginning. He's going to take them back. Jesus is so good at getting into our hearts. Notice when it seems like he's doing these weird end arounds, can I just get a straight answer from you, Jesus? You feel this from the disciples throughout the gospels, but he's always aiming at the thing under the thing. He's always trying to expose what our allegiances are and what our affections are. And so he answers him in verse 17. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. If you, if you want to enter life, if you want to enter the kingdom, keep the commandments. And so this guy, he asks, this, this ruler, he asks about good deeds. It's kind of a, it's a pretty scary question if you think about it. He's asking in some way, what's the price of entry? How do I get in? He's wealthy, so he's thinking through that paradigm and that dynamic. And Jesus asked the man, hey, why are you asking? Why are you asking this question? And so he directs this rich young ruler away from just good deeds, but he directs him up to see what is actually the standard by which you're measuring this? Who creates the standard of what is good to begin with? There's only one who is good. Where's your standard of good coming from? Which raised a question for me. Have you ever thought about where your standard of good comes from? Have you ever just thought about it at an existential level? Where does your standard of what is good and what is not good, where does it come from? We all have our own standards to measure good, and we all use them on a regular basis. This is why you get mad at the person who cuts you off and hits their brakes in traffic, because you have a standard that they're not living up to. But it's amazing to me, just in a, like a broad brush sense, it's amazing that all people have such similar standards for good transcending cultures and times and languages. It's good to save a person's life, right? It's good to give the hungry food and water. This isn't everyone, but it's a vast majority of people would agree on these things. It's good to not spend all of your resources the moment you get them frivolously. It's good to treat others with respect and dignity. I would say that the majority of the world's population would probably come to a sense of agreement on these things. Where did the standards come from? Merely a byproduct of our culture and our time? Or something else? Jesus directs this man to consider the one who is good. Jesus beckons this guy. He said, hey, I need you to... Take this one who is good seriously. And if this man, in his asking of the question, will take the one who is the standard of all good seriously, he'll, seek, he'll begin to seek to honor him. And as he seeks to honor the one who is good, he'll discover the answer to his big question about salvation, not to mention the standard of where all good does come from. And so Jesus, he probes this man's allegiance. And he says what? He says, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. 
Jesus is referring to the Ten Commandments here, and we know that because of verse 18. The guy says, what ones are you talking about? The Israelites at this time had about 613 commandments raging all over the place. And he's going, which ones are you talking about? And Jesus says, how about, let's start with the easy, the easily observable ones. No murder, no adultery, no theft. What about bearing false witness? What about honoring your parents? What about loving your neighbor as yourself? And the guy, he says to Jesus, he says, I've kept all of them. And Jesus, there's something in this guy where it seems like in the way that he's answering the question is he's, he's still feeling like he's on the margins. He's still feeling outside. It seems as though there's something that's haunting the man still. He's like, I've kept them. I'm good, Jesus. According to the law, I'm good, but I'm haunted. I like to imagine in between verses 20 and 21 that there's like two minutes of awkward silence, the most awkward silence you could possibly imagine. I've kept them all. And Jesus is like, all of them? And the guy's like, all of them. And Jesus just goes, looks at the disciples and they're like, right? <laughs> Jesus is like, all of them. You're serious. Huh. Luke tells us that this guy is a ruler. Luke, Luke's gospel tells us that this guy is in charge of people. And Mar Matthew and Mark tells, tell us that he's rich and he's young. So this guy has authority over people. He's young and he's wealthy. What is that a recipe for? <laughs> disaster. That is a recipe for disaster. Zero self-awareness in this guy, in this moment. Now, this is a... a just a word, an honest word to those of you who are young men in, in the room. Uh, young men are some of the most unaware people that I have ever met in my life. How do I know this? And all the older guys are chuckling in the room while you guys are on blast. How do I know? Because we've all been you. We've all been young guys. Like if you're in your teens or your 20s or you're in your early 30s at this stage, you're in this kind of stage where you probably wouldn't say it out loud. Maybe you would and all right. Uh, where, where you think that you're like, you've got the wisdom for the things. You're a bit of the solution to everything. You can preach better than me up here. You know the text better. You can run the company better than your boss. You know what your wife needs in order to be truly happy. And one day when you finally have kids, you'll parent them with the best of them, right? You're the wisest person that you know. But when you add wealth and when you add status to this equation too, authority over the people around you, like I'm just, I, there's nobody that I would rather not hang out with than you. And there's a flip side. For the young guys in the room who are pursuing self-awareness, Pursuing knowledge, pursuing opportunity, pursuing humility by the grace of God, there's almost no one that I would rather hang out with than you. 
to be able to invest in you. But listen, young guys in the room, self-awareness is one of the most incredible gifts that you can give to the people around you. And here is a question that you can ask if you just want to start heading down the road of self-awareness. It's the question to the people who know you best and who live most closely with you, how do you experience me? And you can ask it in a number of different scenarios. How do you experience me in this moment? How do you experience me in that moment? How do you experience me? Now, this is me talking about the young guys in the room without self-awareness. This is me talking from my perspective. And some of the older guys are amening a bit. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't like us. He's a billion times better than we are. A billion Mark 10.21 tells us that Jesus looks at this young man. It's the most peculiar thing. Do you, know what, do you know what Mark's gospel says? When he looks at this guy, what does Jesus do? He loves him. Mark's gospel tells us that he looks at the young man and he loves him. He looks at this unaware man who is standing in front of him, who's th- who thinks that he's kept the law of God with perfection, and he, he loves him. Do you ever look at somebody intently just trying to figure him out? Like, you're not just staring at them, but you're studying them. You're trying to figure out what makes them tick, who they are. That's the sense of what Jesus is doing here. And then Jesus speaks up and he confronts this this young man who he loves. Notice that, who he loves with the first of the Ten Commandments. If you would be complete, if you would be perfect, if you would be mature, go sell your vast possessions, give them, not to me, not to my ministry, give them away to the poor, benefit the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then there's an invitation on the other side of that too. And follow me. Come and be with me. Be close to me. I'll bring you in. You can see my way. I'll rearrange everything for you. And not just security in this life, but Jesus knows that it affords this man security in the ages to come. And verse 22 tells us that the wind in this guy's sails just goes dead. A breeze is blowing in this man's heart and soul. Jesus responds to him, sell what you have, sell what you own, follow me. And the guy doesn't want it. He feels sorrow. He feels grief. Why? Matthew tells us it's because he had great possessions. This man loved his gold more than he loved his God. The pull of his possessions, the pull of his wealth, his, the identity that he got through them was clouding his view. But here Jesus is identifying with the guy, loving him and confronting him. And so, hear this, Jesus loves this man. This man represents you and I. Jesus loves you and I too much to let him, too much to let us sacrifice ourselves at the, idol, at the altar of greed. He loves us too much to let us sacrifice ourselves at the altar of greed. This man is loving something more than his God. He's loving his gold. He's loving his comfort. He's loving himself And it's breaking the very first commandment, Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. He's broken the law on the first one just to begin with. The scriptures teach us that if we break the law at any point of the law, we are lawbreakers and accountable to God. And so Jesus offers this man a kind of treasure that can never be destroyed. Give what you have to the poor. The exchange rate is out of this world. The exchange rate between heavenly treasure and earthly riches 
is magnificent, and then Jesus invites this guy to follow him. Now, I don't know if you've imagined this text to like be a choose-your-own-adventure kind of a text, but what if, have you imagined, what if this man would have responded to Jesus favorably and said, all right, Lord, I'll do it, and gone and sold his possessions, given them to the poor, and invested his whole life and his whole heart in following the Redeemer of humanity? what would have happened? Can you imagine for just a moment? Jesus is inviting him to do something that just feels way too big. But the real invitation and the real opportunity was even bigger. Maybe for you, relocating your earthly possessions in service of building the kingdom of Jesus and in service to his church, maybe it feels too big for you. Maybe it feels too big, but imagine for a moment what this guy would have gained had he left all to follow Jesus instead of walking away sorrowfully with his possessions possessing him, with the things that he owned, having ownership over his heart and his soul and his affection. Jesus was calling this guy, beckoning this guy really to exchange his imposter God, these earthly riches, for the God of incomparable wealth incomparable goodness, incomparable influence, incomparable holiness, incomparable generosity. God is standing before this guy. He doesn't know it, but God himself in the flesh is looking the man in the eyes, already loving him and promising that he will provide for all of his needs, not just in this dash of an age, but in the eternal line of the age to come. He'll care for him. Jesus cares for his people. Here's where the gospel gets so good. You see that Jesus is already, he is also a rich young ruler who has already left his incomparable wealth, his incomparable safety, his joy, his indescribably good community in heaven to come and to suffer, to live in this man's place, to suffer for him and to reconcile him to God. Jesus has left everything that he has to be able to give this man everything that he is and everything that he has. And he's offering as well, not just to those who give, give away what they have to the poor and who can never repay, but even to those, he's offering it to those who in just a moment will reject him. Maybe that's you in the room. He's calling you to himself. He's offering you himself. And you or I have a choice. Followers of Jesus, every day we have a choice. We move closer to him or we walk away from him or move further from him. But people who are on the edge of faith in Christ for the very first time have a choice too. He's offering you joy. He's offering you abundant life. He's offering to take care of you. He's offering a place in his family. He's offering you eternal life. He's offering you his spirit who is the seal who guarantees your inheritance for the day of redemption. He's God of the universe in this little small place in North Idaho is speaking to you right now, offering himself to you. What do you do with his offer? Paul writes about Jesus in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, for you know, he's writing to the church, he's writing to believers, you know the grace, the unmerited favor of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know it, you've experienced it. Though he was rich, yet 
And so at the Father's side, in the heavenly places, yet for your sake, for our sake, Jesus became poor. He took on our humanity. He was born of low estate, humble, in a manger, to be mistreated by us, put to death by us. He became poor. He became the definition of poverty so that we, so that you, by his poverty, might have his riches, might become rich, might be reconciled to God, the maker of our souls. Timothy Keller, he says, Jesus is saying to this man, I won't ask you to do anything I haven't already done. Jesus is not asking the man to do anything he hasn't already done. I'm the ultimate rich young ruler who has given away the ultimate wealth in order to get you. Now you need to give away yours to get me because there's something in the way. The pull of this man's possessions were between he and God, a roadblock, but Jesus is offering something better. Here's the second point, the reward of our true discipleship. So we see there's pull of possessions, but there's also a reward of true discipleship to Jesus in verses 28 through 30. Wealth can be a formidable enemy to our dependence on God. Our possessions, the things that we own, the, thing, the, the, the things that we're chasing, the money that we're chasing, the status that we're chasing can be a formidable enemy to our dependence on God. And if we, if you and I understand more and more that Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler, it's going to change our attitude toward money and toward possessions. Wealth has a potent way of promising us freedom. With wealth, you can go where you want, when you want, how you want. You're never stuck promises freedom. Wealth purchases control. You can do what you want. If the bottom falls out on you, you can just buy your way out. Wealth promises security. You don't have to fear not having enough. Wealth satisfies material cravings. So I cannot be the only person in the, in the room who feels a rush in my head and my heart when I buy something new. Am I alone? Jesus spoke so much about money and possessions because there's not a person in the world who's not tempted to put our trust in it. 100% me. Those who are wealthy aren't the only ones in danger of a love of money. Paul would write to a young disciple and he'd say, for the love of money is a root, it's one of the roots of all kinds of evil. In my experience, it's often the poor, the people who have lack, who are also in just as much danger. Because with money, there's a strong tendency to see it as, and wealth as a way out of discomfort, of, a way out of lack, a way out of bondage to the mundane. We see wealth as a rescuer, giving us freedom, giving us power, giving us mobility, giving us significance. This is why Jesus looks at these, at these disciples as intently as he did this rich young ruler. And he said in verse 23 and 24, he goes, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So these, these disciples, they're astonished and they say, wealth is a, is a sign of blessing in their day, that God has blessed them. And so they must, if people are wealthy, they must be doing something right. God is blessing them with material good. And so that's likely the framework of this rich young ruler, that God has blessed him. And the disciples are kind of living in that same world, pulled by that same sway, and they're astonished. And they say, who can be saved? Which is the right question. Who can be saved? 
Who can be saved? Those who depend on Jesus as their wealth. Those who depend on Jesus as their justifier. Those who depend on Jesus as their security, as their advocate, as their healer, as their hope giver, as the sovereign one who is in ultimate control. Jesus is the rich ruler who supplies all of our needs. The only one who has beaten death by his own authority. The only thing that you and I can do to inherit eternal life is to place our trust in Jesus over every God that this world presents us. And it's not just like for the first time. It's consistent in our day because our gods move and change. They adapt. Our affections are consistently swayed by other things. One day it's a car. The next day it's a house. The next day it's a paycheck. The next day it's this thing. The next day it is that thing. But Jesus here is exclusive. He's exclusive. You shall have no other gods before me. The Bible teaches that it's impossible for any man or woman to come to God on the basis of their works, to come to God on the basis of our performance, to come to God, God on the basis of our, goods, of our good deeds or our merit. But there's this line in this text, but with, God, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. With God it's possible to come to him on the basis of grace. Who then can be saved? Those who depend on God's goodness, those who depend on God's mercy, those who depend on God's invitation, those who take Jesus at his word. It's by faith in me that you are made family, that you are made sons and daughters. It's by faith in me that you're given the spirit. We're empty-handed people relying on nothing but God's mercy towards sinners and forgetters stumblers, hard-hearted, idolatrous people like us. Salvation is not possible by our works, only by the works of the perfect man, Christ Jesus. Peter, the spokesman for the disciples, he speaks up. He's like, Jesus, he's kind of like not really seeing everything that's going on here, which I would be similar. He speaks up and he says, hey, we did what you're telling this guy to do. We've left it all. And they're in this already not yet space. They haven't really seen what they're, all that they're being given in Jesus, but we've left it all. And, and Jesus replies with this affirmation in verse 28 through 30. He says, you have an incredible reward. Yeah, you're poor ministry workers here, but in the age to come, you're going to have tremendous authority and tremendous dignity. Look at verses 28 through, through 30 here. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, there's that invitation that he also gave to the ruler, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. He's speaking to these disciples. You'll be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In verse 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, everybody who has done that, who has given up something for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Uh, The son of man will take his seat on his glorious throne. A few chapters earlier in the beginning of chapter 17, Peter, James, and John, they saw Jesus transfigured. They saw his majesty before him. They saw his glory. And now he's talking about, you guys are going to see me on my glorious throne. So these three, they haven't told anybody else about it because Jesus told them to 
closed their mouths around it and they obeyed him. So there's nine other disciples who haven't seen Jesus's majesty like that. But Peter, James, and John, they can imagine him sitting and ruling with this kind of authority that they saw him with at the transfiguration. The other nine disciples, though, though they're not seeing that, they've still left all that they had on faith to follow Jesus. And he's promising all 12 of them together that they will have tremendous privilege, tremendous authority, tremendous dignity. They'll participate in this final establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. They'll be made kings over all the earth for eternity. That's the exchange rate with a magnificent return. Consider that. If somebody offered you $1,000 right now and promised that the reward on that would be 100x, you'd be a fool not to take it. Jesus is offering security. He's offering abundant life. He's offering the invitation to follow him and to have close relationship with the God who made you and who will provide for you and who will protect you. Even in your suffering, he will see you through that and heal you on the day when he meets you face to face. We would be a fool not to exchange what we have here, what we're living for here. We'd be fools not to exchange, to, uh, not to exchange that in order to follow him. We'd be fools. The call to discipleship involves a cost of discipleship, but the cost of discipleship offers rewards outweighing every rival. The call to follow Jesus involves cost, but that cost offers rewards that will outweigh and outperform every competitor, every rival. James Edwards, here's where I'll conclude. He says this. He says, the kingdom of God topples our cherished priorities and demands of disciples new priorities. It takes from those who follow Jesus the things we would keep and gives us things we could not imagine. Those of us who take our stand on our riches, whatever form they take, will have nothing to stand on. Those of us willing to give up everything, not only possessions, but even people and places or our own lives to follow Jesus won't simply be compensated for our sacrifices or loss, but supplied a hundred times over with the same and in the world to come with eternal life. The kingdom of God is received by little children because they come with nothing but empty hands. They come with nothing but trust. They come with nothing but dependence. When we come like the rich young ruler expecting that we can do something to inherit eternal life, we have missed the heart of God entirely. Abundant life and reconciliation to God comes as a free gift and nothing else. Don't miss Jesus' invitation, Christian and not yet Christian, to come and to follow him. He offers it all to us in a fresh way this morning. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, what does it look like to leverage your possessions and your money for the sake of the gospel? What does it look like? If you do that, I promise you that you will find the God of the gospel to be your greatest treasure. Where your treasure is, where my treasure is, where our treasure is, there we find our hearts. There we find what we most love. Pray with me. Father, 
Show us, teach us, help us. Confront us, correct us, comfort us. Through your spirit, Jesus, help us to follow you. Help us to leverage our lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.